Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. So back when the podcast Sawbones launched, we talked about it a couple of times on the show and on our Twitter and stuff like that. It's been a while since we brought up Sawbones, which is a comedy podcast about medical history that's hosted by Sydney and Justin McElroy. And I was catching up on their show on the plane last week, and I listened to their episode called Corpse Theft and the Resurrection Men, which included, among other things, uh, a little about the Doctor's Riot of 1788, which is what we're going to talk about today, because it sort of whetted my appetite to talk more about that and to learn more about that. Um, so if you've, if you already listen to Sawbones, which I know some of our listeners do listen to Sawbones, there's some crossover there. We are definitely going to talk in more detail about just the doctor's riot and the, the context that led up to it. And this is definitely a different angle than Sawbones. So you, you, you know, there's going to be new stuff in here, even if you listened to that episode. So for context, uh, in 1765, North America got its first medical school at the College of Philadelphia. And from the beginning, medical students at the College of Philadelphia worked with patients at the Pennsylvania Hospital, gradually developing the blueprint for today's medical schools and teaching hospitals. This program wasn't meant to be a person's sole source of medical education, though, Uh, And the same was true of other medical schools that opened up during the colonial period and after the Revolutionary War. At this point, most people became doctors through apprenticeships. And America's first medical schools were intended to be this sort of period of additional focused study for people who had already finished their apprenticeships. They already effectively were doctors before they even went to medical school. There was also a lot of anatomical study on cadavers in these programs. And the idea that doctors needed to learn anatomy and that dissecting cadavers was a good way to do this had become really prevalent during the 18th century. The thing that had not become really prevalent was a big supply of cadavers to dissect. (laughs) The idea of donating your body to science really did not exist at this point. Uh, Most colonies either had no laws governing how bodies might be used for medical study or they specifically prohibited certain uses. For example, dissecting unclaimed bodies. There was definitely no regulation of how cadavers might be legally obtained and delivered. So schools needed these bodies for legitimate study, but they had no legal channels to get them. Plus, there were all kinds of religious and cultural taboos that made people pretty opposed to the idea of having their bodies cut up and examined after they were dead. Among Christians and Jews, the body was sacred. Various Christian denominations believed that being cut up after death was sacrilegious and it would prevent them from getting into heaven or from being resurrected on Judgment Day. Similar beliefs about the sacredness of the body also ran through African traditions that slaves had brought with them. And being a doctor at this point in time did not have the prestige and the clout that it does today, at least in the Western world. So people were not particularly inclined to go against all of these layers of taboo to let their bodies be cut up by doctors. Uh, and it didn't help that British medical schools had been using executed criminals for their dissections. So this made American communities associate being dissected with being a criminal or with being punished. Although it was illegal, 
There were some schools that got their bodies from prisons and almshouses and other institutions. They would covertly buy the bodies of people who had died before they even were buried. But really, the primary source of cadavers for a really long time was grave robbing. And this, of course, had its own social and religious implications. So churchyards were and remain, for many people, sacred. Uh, bodies, sacred. So digging up bodies out of graveyards and cutting them up was a gross offense. And it made doctors who already weren't particularly well-respected seem like they had just this wanton disregard for human life and just no regard for basic decency. There were doctors and students who dug up their own cadavers, but they mostly outsourced that work to people who were known as resurrectionists who did the actual grave robbing. I feel like this would be a great series on one of the secondary um, uh, channels, The Resurrectionists. Uh, and they had this process, The Resurrectionists, down to a science. So at this point, embalming was not uh, widely used. It, you know, had culturally in history, it had happened in many places, but in terms of like the modern approach to it, that was not really common. Uh, so these guys had to work quickly. Ideally, within hours of burial. It was kind of like a heist movie, except it involved graves instead of like a bank. Uh, and instead of digging up the whole length of the casket, they'd work just from the head and they would weaken one end of the casket by drilling holes in it before bashing it in and just pulling the body out through the hole with hooks, getting in and out of the place within an hour and timing the passing of their getaway vehicle so they could slip the body into it and escape. The graves that were at the biggest risk of being robbed were the ones that belonged to poor people and slaves. And these were the people who were least likely to have someone watching out for the grave after the people died. In both of these places, the resurrectionists did not have to be quite as on the ball with their, you know, their their heist shenanigans. Because most of the people who were being buried in cemeteries for the poor and for slaves didn't have the money to buy a coffin. So they were buried directly in the dirt. In the words of Harriet Martineau, who was writing uh, an account of a trip in the 1800s, quote, In Baltimore, the bodies of colored people exclusively are taken for dissection because the whites do not like it and the colored people cannot resist. So although the uh, overwhelming majority of stolen bodies were those of black people and poor people, having money or status was not necessarily a protection. High-profile body thefts made headlines, such as the time that a search party found the body of John Harrison, who was son of President William Henry Harrison and father of President Benjamin Harrison, at a medical college in Cincinnati. This meant the people who could afford it would bury their loved ones in these sealed iron coffins, or they would surround the whole gravesite in this metal cage that covered the whole thing. Some of them who had the money to even hired armed guards to watch over their newly buried bodies. And regardless of who you were, your body really was not safe from theft until it had been in the ground for about two weeks in the winter, uh, shorter in the summer, at which point it would be too decomposed to be dissected. And before we move on to exactly what was happening in New York at the time of this particular riot, let's have a brief moment for a word from a sponsor. In New York, where the riot that we're talking about today took place, a major source of bodies for cadaver study was the potter's field, where the poor and the unknown were buried in unmarked graves. The other big source was the Negroes' burial ground, which was, kind of coincidentally, quite close to New York Hospital. Nearly all of New York City's black population was buried in Negroes' burial ground. 
there was only one church that buried black people in a segregated churchyard, and it charged a fee to do so. As body theft from the Negro's burial ground became more and more commonplace, freed slaves would actually buy land to use as private cemeteries. This didn't necessarily help since these private burial grounds sometimes became targets of their own. New York City's demand for all these cadavers came from two sources. One was its medical school at Columbia College, and the other was Richard Bailey, who was a doctor from Connecticut. And he was teaching not-for-credit medical classes at New York Hospital, which we just mentioned was very close to the Negro's burial ground. And that made the Negro's burial ground an easy target for grave robbers. So both freed people and slaves in New York at this time had become increasingly upset at the prevalence of grave grave robbing from the black burial spaces. In early February of 1788, a group of 2,000 slaves and 1,000 freed people began petitioning the city's common council, including the mayor and aldermen, not for the grave robbing to stop, but for it at least to be carried out in a decent and respectful way. This petition read in part, Most humbly, sirs, we declare that it has lately been the practice of a number of young gentlemen in this city who call themselves students of the physic to repair to the burying ground assigned for the use of your petitioners. Under cover of night, in the most wanton sallies of excess, they dig up bodies of our deceased friends and relatives of your petitioners, carrying them away without respect for age or sex, mangle their flesh out of a wanton curiosity, and then expose it to beasts and birds. Your petitioners are well aware of the necessity of physicians and surgeons consulting dead subjects for the benefit of mankind. Your petitioners do not presuppose it as an injury to the deceased and would not be adverse to dissection in particular circumstances. That is, if it is conducted with the decency and propriety which the solemnity of such occasion requires. Your petitioners do not wish to impede the work of these students of the physic, but most humbly pray your honors to take our case into consideration and adopt such measure as may seem to prevent further abuses in the future. Their petition was ignored. But on February 21st, so only a couple of weeks later, the Daily Advertiser published an anonymous report about how, quote, Few blacks are buried whose bodies are permitted to remain in the grave, end quote. Through the rest of February and part of March, the Daily Advertiser went on to publish really horrifying accounts of grave desecration and body theft. And then uh, things came to a head in April. There are several conflicting reports of exactly what started the riot. So it's not completely clear exactly what happened, But there are three pretty common elements among all the various retellings. The first is that on April 13th, some doctors and their teacher were dissecting a cadaver in a lab at New York Hospital. The second is that by some means or another, a boy got a glimpse of what was going on through the window and the doctors saw him. And the third is that one of the surgeons, probably in an attempt to scare the boy off, waved the cadaver's arm at him. In some versions of the story, one of the doctors shouted that it was the boy's mother's arm. And by coincidence, this boy's mother had died very recently. This version of the story usually goes on to say that the boy ran home and told his father, who exhumed his mother's grave, only to find it empty. That seems like a lot of things 
that had to happen just that way. Um, yeah, it it feels I, like an urban legend. Yeah, something definitely happened to spark the whole riot, but this particular uh, version of the story is completely retold. But I, I read a couple of things that kind of went back through all of the earliest correspondence and news reports, and we're like, uh, eh, we there's not actual documentation of exactly what really tipped the scale. But regardless of how exactly this whole thing started, a mob soon descended upon New York Hospital. In a letter to Virginia Governor Edmund Randolph, Colonel William Heth described it this way. The cry of barbarity and etc. was soon spread. The young sons of Galen fled in every direction. One took refuge in a chimney. The mob raised and the hospital apartments were ransacked. In the anatomy room were found three fresh bodies one boiling in a kettle and two others cut up, with certain parts of the two sects hanging up in a most brutal position. The circumstances, together with the wanton and apparent inhuman complexion in the room, exasperated the mob beyond all bounds to the total destruction of every anatomy in the hospital. And while many of the doctors and the teachers did indeed flee, some stayed behind to try to protect the cadavers, the other specimens, and the teaching materials. But the mob that arrived at the hospital dragged all of this out into the street and they set it on fire. They also reburied the bodies that had not been dissected yet. The mayor, James Duane, arrived with the sheriff and put the doctors and teachers into protective custody at the jail. This calmed things down a little bit. But during the night, medical students from Columbia, fearing that their school was going to be the next target, went into the school to hide all of their anatomical materials and cadavers that they would not be burned and destroyed as well. And this turned out to be a fortunate move, since during the night, two medical students, George Swinney and Isaac Gano, broke into a churchyard and stole the body of a well-known white woman, which meant that the mob that formed the next morning was immense and furious. It swelled to about 5,000 people. This mob was bound and determined to find and destroy anything that was being used for anatomical study at Columbia. So they searched the entire college, including the dorms, and they went on to search doctors' homes. One person they ran across was even beaten solely for wearing black, which was the color that the doctors usually wore. And when the mob found nothing, uh, they all ended up going to the jail, where they started an assault on the building with rocks and bricks. They tore down the gallows to use the wood as a weapon. As the rocks and the bricks broke windows and made their way into the cells where people were being held, the doctors and the students started collecting them, along with broken glass, to defend themselves. And this riot went on for another full day until the governor called out the militia. They brought in a brigade and artillery. In the ensuing melee, it's uh, similarly not clear exactly what happened, but ultimately at least three rioters and three militiamen were killed. The final death toll is often cited at 20. And afterwards, residents of New York doubled down on their efforts to protect the bodies of the dead. Armed groups called Dead Guardmen started to keep watch over cemeteries. Bailey and the other doctors fudged the truth by saying they had never asked anyone to steal a body from one of the city's graveyards. The reason this was not really on the up and up was that the Potter's Field and the Negro's burial ground were both outside of the city limits. Uh, And in fact, at this point, black people could only be buried outside the city limits. 
So what they were saying was technically true, but it was really pretty weaselly. Yes. Uh, there was a grand jury investigation, but no charges seemed to have been filed. And no one was convicted, possibly because both the rioters and the doctors were breaking the law. This riot, apart from destroying anatomical uh, equipment and samples and causing some deaths, had some ongoing ramifications, which we're going to talk about afterward from a sponsor. So the doctor's riot, which was in 1788, was only one of the anatomy riots in the United States. Between 1765 and 1854, there were at least 17 of them. They took place primarily in New England, where most of the medical colleges were at the time. But there were also riots as far west as Ohio and Illinois. And these were not at, like, fly-by-night shady schools. Uh, in an 1824 riot, the target of this uh, mob aggression was actually Yale University. In January of 1789, which was the year after the doctor's riot in New York took place, the New York legislature passed laws that made grave robbing illegal. And they earmarked certain crimes as being punishable by, quote, dissection after death. So there would be a legal supply of bodies. But this didn't provide enough bodies for the medical study that was going on. So the grave robbing did continue, particularly in potter's fields and black cemeteries. Massachusetts passed a law making it legal to dissect unclaimed bodies in 1831. New York did the same thing in 1854. But other laws were a little bit slower in coming. By 1913, Louisiana and Alabama still had no legal way for medical schools to obtain cadavers, while most other states had passed laws allowing unclaimed bodies, donated bodies, and the bodies of executed criminals to be dissected. Even then, the bodies that were being dissected in medical schools were disproportionately those of poor people and minorities. So they were people who couldn't afford burials or their families couldn't afford to claim their bodies And grave robbing for cadaver purposes continued in the United States until the 1920s. In the 1960s and 1970s, the medical establishment worked to change people's perceptions of dissection and of donating bodies to science. In 1968, the National Conference of the Commissioners on Uniform State Laws approved the Uniform Anatomical Gift Act, or UAGA. Uh, And this made donating your body a choice and a gift. And it also gave the person who was doing the donating, so the person whose body it actually was, the ultimate say in what would happen to them. So if you wanted to donate your body, it would be donated, even if your next of kin objected to the choice that you had made. Almost every state had had adopted this law or something very similar to it within a few years. And today, bequests actually make up the large majority of cadavers, which completely changed the demographic of dissected bodies in medical schools. Yeah. One of my sources cited a personal communication from somebody at Duke University Medical School from about 10 years ago. And at that point, according to this personal correspondence, uh, like the cadavers at Duke were overwhelmingly those of Caucasian people. Um, I could not find statistics for like the broader all of United States medical school or in general people who are donating their bodies. Uh, but this whole shift in it from being a thing that happens to you if you can't afford to be buried to a thing you choose to do totally changed the whole picture of it. Which is very fascinating stuff. Uh, and kind of, kind of gruesome. It is. 
But, you know, it's good that people recognize that science needs their body after they have shuffled off this mortal coil. Uh, do you have listener mail, which may or may not be about dead people? I do have listener mail that is about someone who is dead, but it is not about their bodies. Uh, this is from Heather, and it's about our Edna St. Vincent Millay episode. And Heather says, Dear Tracy and Holly, I just listened to your two-part episode on Edna St. Vincent Millay and had to write in to share my own experiences with the poet. While she did not live most of her adult life in Maine, we Mainers claim her as one of our own, despite our people's taciturn disapproval of her, quote, firecracker lifestyle. I first fell in love with Renaissance when I read it in eighth grade as part of a required unit on our home state of Maine. For extra credit, I went to Camden and hiked Mount Batty, part of the Camden Hills, and climbed up Mount Batty Tower and photographed the scene that inspired the opening lines of the poem, as well as a plaque placed into the tower commemorating, quote, Maine's finest lyric poet. She's described in the plaque as a frail girl with flaming red hair, and the general description of her told in public schools is one of a brilliant mind combined with a love of nature. It wasn't until I was in college that I learned of Vincent's love affairs with men and women, and that she reportedly wore pants and smoked marijuana long before those were acceptable. I have no proof of these claims other than what my professor told me, but I love thinking of her as such a unique spirit. Needless to say, it was a far cry from the stodgy old codgers we'd been reading about. When I became a high school English teacher, I always led with Vincent's shenanigans, turning my students into fans before they'd read a single line of her poetry. To me, she is the patron saint of awesome, and largely my kids agreed. Maine can be a harsh climate, and too often those who lived here are broken by the demands of survival, even today. I've always loved that Edna St. Vincent Millay gave that way of life two firm middle fingers and lived her own way so fully. I think she and Thoreau would have been great friends if they could have been here in Maine together. Thank you so much for the podcast, Heather. And she included some photos. Now I think about the time traveling possibilities of like Edna St. Vincent Millay at Brook Farm Community. Yeah, I kind of <laughs> want I kind of want Edna St. Vincent Millay to have had a big conversation with Walt Whitman. <laughs> yeah, I could see that being a, a pretty fun show to watch. I would pay tickets for that. I think I might, too. So if you would like to write to us about this or any other subject, you can. We're at HistoryPodcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We've been saying that address for a while, but to make it super clear, if you send it to Discovery.com, we will not get it. Uh, we are on Facebook at Facebook.com slash History and on Twitter at History. Our Tumblr is MissedInHistory.tumblr.com, and we are also on Pinterest. Uh, if you'd like to learn more about what we talked about today, you can come to HowStuffWorks.com, put the word doctor in the search bar, and you will find How Becoming a Doctor Works. You can also come to our website, which is MissedInHistory.com, where you will find all kinds of show notes, links to all the episodes. I will also put into today's show notes links to two different websites that listeners have made for us telling you whether England was at war with France. You can do all of that and a whole lot more at our website. HowStuffWorks.com or MissedInHistory.com For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com Music